Thanks, Sam. Uh, morning, everybody. Yeah, so if you're new here, we have been tracking through the book of Ephesians, and uh, I love the book of Ephesians, but because it's so short. I, I remember uh, when I was a teenager, I got my first um, Bible. I don't know if anyone else in the youth group got like a teen Bible or anything like that. I remember that, and uh, it had me so excited. It was really cool. I think it was called something like uh, Route 66 or something, because there's 66 books in the Bible. And it was like filled with cartoons and like artistic scribble over the top of the letters in the Bible, which is really sort of naughty and badass. And, and I thought, this is it. This is the moment I've been waiting for. I'm going to read this thing from cover to cover. And that didn't last very long. And so I settled on a few books that were short enough. And one of those books was Ephesians. So I read Ephesians a good, good few times in my teenage years. So it's got a special place in my heart. Now, I don't know if any of you saw the... Uh, Rugby World Cup, we have mentioned it a few times. If you did, you may have come across uh, this ad by Heineken. I thought this was just brilliant marketing. It's a number of scenes of a fan who's completely clueless of the rules of rugby. So he's cheering at all the wrong times, he's booing at all the wrong times, he doesn't understand any of the ref's calls or what's going on. And fair enough too, right? You know, rugby can be uh, somewhat confusing. And I thought this was brilliant marketing by Heineken because what they were saying is it acknowledges the fact that, you know, when it comes to rugby, many of us feel like a fish out of water. And Heineken is saying, hey, that's okay. You can still enjoy the game. You can still be one of us. And, of course, you can still buy our beer. Both, um, both my boys, my older boys play rugby, but I'm not your sort of traditional rugby dad who grew up playing the game. I was like a soccer kid uh, growing up. Joe has uh, got the rugby running through her family. So I'm sort of learning the rules of the game at the same pace as my oldest son. So next year, everybody, I'm going to learn about tackling. So I'll know everything there is to know about tackling next year. Uh, a month or so ago, we had an end-of-season party at our place for, for Barney's team. And, um, and all the mums and dads were there. And that thing happens socially where, you know, the guys split off and the girls split off and they're all talking and the guys were like all ex-rugby players. So we're sitting there in a circle and they're all sharing, you know, these tales from the glory days and uh, all those boozy bus trip stories. And I'm just sitting there, you know, with this, this blank expression on my face and like dead behind the eyes. I just felt, I felt so out of place. I just had absolutely nothing to contribute. I think the older I'm getting, the more you know, comfortable I am in those situations. It happens a lot. But that's a common experience, right? Whether it be rugby or something else, you know, all of us at times can feel like a real fish out of water. Uh, for some of us, maybe you're here from an, another culture entirely, and that might be your daily experience, trying to be understood and to understand the culture around you. And I don't know about you, but I often feel like a fish out of water when it comes to reading the Bible. I pick this book up and start reading, and suddenly I'm rudely thrust into a world where I feel completely out of place. You turn to the front and they're talking about temples and sacrificing animals. You fast forward a little bit, uh, you read about Roman soldiers and angels. You go to the back and someone's having an apocalyptic vision about the end of the world. Um, I think I really feel the distance, right, from here to there, to that world. Geographically, of course, because, you know, all the stuff was going on on the other side of the world and places completely unfamiliar to us. But more obviously, culturally, I'm just not a first century Jew, right? Not many of us here are. And so there's all the history and culture that goes along with that. And I grew up in a Christian home, so I've been around this language for decades, and still, uh, for me, so much of the time it feels really alien. Here's the cool thing as we come to the book of Ephesians. 
Paul is writing to people in many ways just like us. This church was made up of non-Jews, largely, who were almost completely unfamiliar with the bigger Jewish story. If you remember, what we call the Old Testament today was, in fact, the Hebrew Bible for the Jews of the time. And so for Gentiles, for non-Jews, they didn't understand the whole context. Here's Here's a timeline I found online. They didn't understand the context of this whole story of Israel. Um, they, didn't understand, they didn't have in their history the stories of Noah, of Moses, of Abraham. The God of the Jews was not their God. Yeah, these were pagans who I believed in no God or a hundred different gods. And so this is why, as we've been hearing over the last four weeks, as we've studied this book, Paul goes to such great lengths in his letter to make sure that the Ephesians realize that they are included. In fact, he spends about half the letter just getting them up to speed on what's happening and what it means. So I just want to say to you today that it's okay to feel out of your depth with the Bible. The Ephesians were in the same boat. And my prayer for us this morning would echo Paul's uh, as he was writing this letter from his prison cell that we would be strengthened by his words. So let's look quickly at what Paul has been saying in the first half of this letter as it leads us up to chapter 5. Now Paul is desperate to tell people that something incredible has happened, because of which everything has now changed. And he uses this language of the mystery of God. Paul says several times that the mystery of God has now been revealed. Ephesians chapter 1, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. Ephesians chapter 3, in reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. And then later on, this grace was given me to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God. This language is used elsewhere in the Bible too. In Colossians, I've become a servant, the commission God gave gave me, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but it's now disclosed to the Lord's people. And further on, in order that they may know the mystery of God. Now, the mystery of God is a very polite way of saying, God, where the heck are you? What have you been doing? What's the plan? Are you even there? Aren't they prayers that we've all prayed? And realize that this was a prayer that the Jewish people had been praying almost nonstop. You see, for the last several hundred years, since the events at the end of the Old Testament, God had seemingly gone silent. The Jews were under an oppressive occupation by the Romans, and yet hanging in the atmosphere were these promises from the great prophets like Isaiah and Daniel that God would one day send a Messiah who would free them from their bondage, lead them into victory over their enemies, that a new age of justice and peace would begin, that all their tears would be wiped away. And so the atmosphere at that time was pregnant with this expectation that God was about to move. And so every now and again, there would be these supposed Messiah figures who would pop up and attract a following, and everyone's hopes would go up. Is this the time when the mystery of God is going to be revealed? But sooner or later, inevitably, the movement would be crushed, its leader killed, and nothing would come of it. So Paul's making a huge claim here. Paul's saying, this is it. This is the time we've been waiting for. God has finally shown his hand. And this is the very definition of the word gospel, by the way. Gospel means the good news. First and foremost, this letter to the Ephesians is a proclamation for the gospel. Now, in the chapter we're about to look at, we're going to look at some ethical teachings and some applications. But this is not good advice, right? This is good news from which flows all this other stuff. 
Something amazing has happened, and everything else flows on from that. So what is the plan of God that's been revealed? What is this mystery? Paul sums it up in those first chapters that we've looked at. His mystery's now been revealed. We're adopted into God's family through the freely given grace of Jesus. That Jesus in his death and resurrection has paid the price for our wrongdoings that keep us separate from God. We can now participate in his family. That even more, we're somehow part of Christ's body here on earth. Jesus, remember, he's been resurrected and ascended into heaven. We're told that now he's in charge, and somehow mysteriously we are to work together and be his hands and feet in the world, continuing the work of his ministry. That we have freedom from sin and death. We no longer need to be slaves to our wrongdoing. Isn't that great news? If you're sitting here today and you have an addiction, or maybe you have behaviors that you feel like you can't rid yourself of, Jesus says, come to me. I can set you free from that stuff. And even better than that, when one day you do die, you'll join me in paradise. He's defeated death itself. That Jews and non-Jews can all participate. We've just already talked about this. God's thrown the doors wide open. It's an invitation to the whole world. That project that God started with Israel to be a wholly chosen people who would bless the nations has exploded out into the wider world. We've been given the Holy Spirit. God hasn't left us alone. He now wants to dwell inside each and every one of us, comforting us, revealing truth to us, empowering us to reach the world. And that finally, that through the church, now God's glory is to be made known to the world. It is the people of God who will carry on the work that Jesus has begun. So what is the mystery of God? What is the answer to that cry? God, where are you? What are you up to? What's the answer to that question? We are. You and me, his church. We are the means through which his glory is now to be made known to the whole world. So just stop and think for a moment of all those people crying out now as we meet here, God, where are you? Are you even real? God, would you help me? Are we going to be there for them? In fact, in his Sermon on the Mount, one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture is the Beatitudes, and they foretell this very moment. Jesus says to them, blessed are the poor of spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Well, who is it who is meant to bring the good news of the kingdom to those who are poor in spirit? It's us. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Who is it who's meant to comfort the grieving? That's us, isn't it? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Who is it who's meant to fight for justice for those who have been denied it? We are. So Paul's saying, guys, everyone, we have a job to do, a new vocation, a new calling. And I don't think we can overestimate just how surprising this good news was to Paul's readers. Remember, these... People have gone from passively observing and waiting on God to now being invited in to play a crucial part in the story. I recently uh, read my boys their first Choose Your Own Adventure book. It was a Sonic the Hedgehog one. And their stupid little faces, they just dropped open. They just couldn't believe that they could shape the direction of the story. They were used to stories being someone, something written by somebody else, and they were just along for the ride, along for the journey. But they just couldn't get over it. And I'd say, Frankie, should Sonic go left towards the Temple of Doom, or should he carry on right? And, and they just couldn't believe it. It gave them such a buzz. It was so surprising. 
N.T. Wright, who's a very well-known New Testament theologian, says this of our new vocation. Our task is image-bearing, God-loving, Christ-shaped, spirit-filled Christians following Christ and shaping our world is to announce redemption to the world that, it's dis- that has discovered its fallenness, to announce healing to the world that has discovered its brokenness, to proclaim love and trust to the world that knows only exploitation, fear, and suspicion. Now, I don't know about you, but this should energize us We have a part to play. And remember, we all make up different parts of the body of Christ, which means it's a particular part that only you can play that God has specially wired and designed you for. And you know, this energizing purpose is needed more than ever. Leaders across both the church and wider society, as well as a growing number of experts in academia, are recognizing that the Western world is experiencing a profound crisis of meaning and purpose. John Viveki is a professor in psychology and cognitive science, and he's doing fascinating research into what has been called the meaning crisis. Here are some of the factors he's discovered. That social media is leading to an increase in depression and loneliness. This has been proven in clinical trials. That smartphone usage is leading to shorter attention spans and inability to connect with humans in real life. That the mental health crisis, which is fueled by a number of factors, is driven hugely by this lack of meaning and purpose in people's lives. There's an increasing abandonment of trust in public institutions. People are starting to even not trust their doctors and their politicians. There's declining participation in clubs and organisations, leading to a lack of community. There's the decreasing role of religion in society and then an increase in political tribalism. All these factors point to the fact that our culture is experiencing a profound crisis of meaning. So in a culture starved of meaning, this good news of our God-given vocation is now needed more than ever. I remember when I first met Joe, my wife, this is before we were a couple, we were just friends, and I had the privilege of being involved in leading her to the Lord. And I remember as she was retelling me what had been happening for her and the things that the Spirit had been doing, and I just had this deep sense of mission accomplished, almost like um, my whole reason for being had been fulfilled. And this thought popped into my mind, unprovoked, I could die happy. It was like I had this, this deep reason, this, this whole reason I was here, I'd achieved that purpose. Paul then comes in Ephesians chapter 5. In light of all this, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Gee, thanks, Paul. You spent the first half of the letter telling me how included I am, and uh, now I'm out. That's me. Uh, these are really tough words. Uh, I don't know about you, but I struggle with some of these sins. But let's be clear what he's saying in the toughest verse there, verse 5 in the middle. If your life is characterized by immorality impurity or greed, it indicates that your heart has been so turned away from God that it is as if you are worshipping an idol. He's saying, I don't want to see even a hint of that behavior among you as God's people. 
Now, elsewhere, Paul goes to great pains to emphasize the grace of God extended to all of us who struggle with sin, but here he's wanting to make a different point. Remember, the aim at the top of this passage is to bring us to maturity as children of God. This theme of maturity in Christ, it runs all through the New Testament. It was central to Paul's mission. Paul himself wrote, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. It's to this end that I strenuously contend. Later, uh, back in Ephesians there, uh, the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Uh, I'm a parent of four young children, and like any good parent, I want my kids to grow up to be uh, mature adults. So I've just taken a wee bit of artistic license here, and I've um, categorized my kids, one, two, three, four, into different stages of maturity. I just want you to, have a, we're just going to rattle through these. I just want you to think about maybe where you're at, and what you'll probably find is your life will be divided. You might have aspects of your life that are pretty mature. You might have aspects that are more mature. This is my life, man. This is all my sermon illustrations of my kids. All right, I'm so sorry. This is my life. Let's start with Abe. Abe, holy moly, he's a terror. He's got a death wish. He plays with knives. Literally, he'll just walk around in the kitchen, waiting, you know, touching up on the bench. He's got a knife, and he'll run off waving a knife. He has tantrums. He's egocentric. He's acting entirely on instinct. But he's loved regardless. Maybe you're like Abe. Or maybe aspects of your life are like Abe. Maybe you're a rule breaker. You're rebellious. Maybe you're self-centered. Maybe you just do what feels right. Maybe you hurt yourself and those around you. Know that you are loved regardless. I've got parts of my life that are still like this. Absolutely. God is saying to you that you're deeply loved, but won't you trust me and come and see what I have for you? There's so much more life and joy for you to discover. Maybe you're like Pearl. She's our three-year-old. Pearl is compliant because she wants to please. But she will lie if she doesn't get what she wants. She'll hit her brothers if they annoy her. Pearl is a rule follower, but she doesn't really understand why. She doesn't understand the benefits of doing what mum and dad say. She's at her best when she's actively encouraged, when we're holding her hand, giving her lots of praise, but her instincts are still very selfish, and she will crack under pressure. <laughs> now, now, Paul himself used to be a Pharisee. He knew all about rule-keeping. Let me tell you, if you're in this place, this is a place that will burn you out. I tell you, the number of kids I knew who grew up in Christian homes had to follow all the rules, and yet who never truly had that relationship of under, understanding with Jesus just fell away. It will happen. Why? Because keeping rules will not change your heart, and it's your heart that God wants. His invitation to you is come, fall in love with my ways and grow deep roots that will help you weather those storms of life. Maybe you're like Frankie. Frankie, he knows his veggies make him big and strong. He knows if he runs on the road, he might get hurt. He understands the consequences, both positive and negative. He understands boundaries that they're, now I'm taking a wee bit of license here. Frankie's not, not this perfect. He, he understands those boundaries are there for his own good, but he can still be self-centered and self-focused. Somebody like Frankie, maybe we've faced the painful consequences of our actions. We've learned the hard way. And so therefore we're joyfully following God in these areas of our life because we understand the benefits of living God's way. But maybe underneath all that, we still have a self-centered motive. And I just want to comment on this one because 
This is a fantastic place to get to in so many ways. And it's one that I know we as a church, we emphasize this all the time. You know, um, we love to say that everything Jesus calls us to is motivated by love. It leads us to life. This focus on the life that comes when we live the way that God wants us to. But I would argue that just staying here is not going to grow the kingdom of God. It's not going to fulfill the commission to see the glory of God made known to the nations. By keeping this to ourselves, we lose an opportunity to partner with God in much, something much bigger. The invitation is to step into the bigger picture of the healing and redemption that God wants to bring to the whole world. And maybe you're like Barney, and this is taking a lot of license here. Holy moly. Barnaby loves helping mum and dad. In fact, and this is true, he makes breakfast in the morning so we get to sleep in. Oh, I love it. He wants his siblings to be healthy, so he encourages them to eat their veggies. Good man, Barnaby. Maybe you're like Barney. You get pleasure out of leading and encouraging. You want to be a light to others. You're other-focused, and therefore you are trusted. So, so then when it comes to this passage on our sexuality, for instance, it's not just Paul saying, behave yourselves because God's watching. It's also not just Paul telling us to love a life of sexual purity for all those practical reasons that we know too well. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that's actually wise advice. But he's saying that when we live wisely, we end up revealing something of the very nature of God to those who are around us. Galen was one of the great medical names of the ancient world, and he had heard about these Christians, and there were two things that he knew about them, both of which made him think they were completely mad but worthy of respect. One was that they believed in the resurrection of the body, and the other was that they didn't sleep around. I remember back in my university days, people knew I was a Christian, but it wasn't the fact that I believed that a dead guy had been brought back to uh, life 2,000 years ago that blew their mind. It was the fact that I had chosen to remain a virgin. A virgin. And it was the fact... (laughs) But, you know, it was the fact that I lived this life of, quote-unquote, purity... I was not perfect, without all the other baggage that people normally associate with that stuff, you know, stuffiness and a lack of fun. No, I was just a normal guy. I was into everything. I was having lots of fun. In fact, when I met my wife for the first time, this is really embarrassing, we're just friends, she gave me the nickname Mary <laughs> because, um, because I was so strangely virginal. Uh, and yet, she couldn't dismiss me as some kind of freak because I was an otherwise nice, normal person. With, I just happened to have high standards around ethics and morals. I was somehow choosing to be a virgin. So therefore, I must have been motivated by something really real. And this was so countercultural, particularly in the theatre world where Joe and I met, where you know, sex was freely available and it was expected you to participate in all that. Why would I put myself through that? Unless there was some reason that meant a lot to me. The fact that I was walking in sexual purity was compelling. Let's keep going, rattle through. Uh, right, Paul goes on in verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light, which is why it's said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Obviously, this language of being the light is used elsewhere. Jesus says it, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. 
So living wisely then is not only for ourselves, but to be an illumination for others. Not just so that we ourselves would flourish, but that others might flourish. There's this really cool town in Norway that I found out about called Rukan. It's about 3,000 people, and the town is nestled in this dark valley in the mountains, and for six months of the year, they get no light. They're living in darkness. So about five years ago, the town got together and installed this series of angled mirrors up on the mountainside to reflect sunlight into the township. People were living in darkness, and now they live in this reflected sunlight half the year. Isn't that cool? Uh, N.T. Wright, again, he uses uh, this language. He talks about uh, when the Bible says in Genesis that we're created in the image of God, it means not primarily that we happen to have one or more characteristics of God, that we've got consciousness, that we're creative, but rather that we are here to reflect the image of God out into the world. And he even talks of us being like angled mirrors that reflect the glory of God into the world and then reflect the praises of all creation back up to heaven. And society is crying out for this, guys. In Romans, it says the whole of creation is groaning as if in the pains of childbirth, waiting for the children of God to be revealed. We live in a world desperate for the image and glory of God. There's even the saying, there's no culture anymore but pop culture. Where are the new ideas? There's nothing new in our culture. It's just endlessly recycling. Sequels of movies and remakes. It's like our mirrors are out of kilter and all we are reflecting is the vanity of society back on itself. For you were once darkness, but now you are light. We are going to be projecting something into the world. What's it going to be? Verse 15, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Don't get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery. Instead be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise. We've looked at maturity, but how do we become mature? By choosing the way of wisdom. Wisdom, again, a massive theme that we find throughout the Bible. Particularly interesting how it's treated in a number of Old Testament books, primarily Proverbs. Book of Proverbs could have been written just as a list of things to do, things not to do, a list of God advice. But instead, the author gives wisdom a personality. Wisdom is personified as a woman. King Solomon wrote Proverbs, and he's writing it to his son. He's saying, son, you're going to face many things in life. Let me contrast for you these two women. Notice this first one. This is the, uh, the personification of folly, of unwisdom, of, of the adulteress. I noticed among the young men a youth who had no sense. Then out came a woman to meet him, dressed like a prostitute with crafty intent. She took hold of him, kissed him, said, I perfume my bed. Come, let's drink deeply of love. My husband's not at home. With persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him. I love this line. All at once he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter. Solomon contrasts this with the figure of wisdom, who again is personified as this woman. Doesn't wisdom call out? She takes her stand beside the gate. She says, listen, for I have trustworthy things to say. I open my lips to speak what's right. My mouth speaks what's true. My speaks what is true. My lips detest wickedness. Choose my instruction. In the Ethan Orthodox tradition, they go even further. They uh, 
present this person of divine wisdom as an icon in their church. This is a painting, and up there you've got the angels, you've got God the Father, you've got Jesus and Mary, and in the middle, that is uh, Sophie, Sophia, uh, Sophia, who is divine wisdom itself personified. It's where we get our word philosophy from, the love of wisdom. It might seem weird for us to think of wisdom as a person, but just think for a second of our sins, of the unwise things we do. Chances are we're not doing those things because we've been told to do them or we've read them in a list. We didn't read somewhere, oh, yeah, I should get drunk and yell at the kids. No, we sin because in our heart we have fallen in love with something. Sinning, like living wisely, is ultimately an act of the heart and its desires. This is why the Bible personifies sin as demonic influences. It recognizes that these aren't merely dry, moral rules being broken, but in fact something deeply personal and relational is going on. Sin is telling us a story, it's wooing us, it's deceiving us. For those of us who have struggled with addiction, we're no stranger to that language. We'll often talk about the fact that we have an unhealthy relationship with alcohol. We become a different person when we are under its influence. The Bible goes on to reveal Jesus as the ultimate personification of the wisdom of God. What is this wisdom that's been given to him was said of Jesus as he was preaching? In 1 Corinthians, Christ Jesus has become for us wisdom of God. And in Colossians, Christ in whom, all, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom. It begs the question, how many of us have accepted Jesus as our saviour, but maybe not as our wise example? And Paul goes even further. In Ephesians he says, now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities. Through the church. We are the bearers of the wisdom of God. So in living wisely, we reveal to the world the very wisdom of God himself. Utterly compelling to a world filled with foolishness. Now you may not consider yourself an evangelist, but I know nothing more evangelistic than presenting to the world a lifestyle thoroughly transformed by the power of God. And I think it's time we reclaim Christian ethical teaching about relationships alcohol, honesty, you name it, and we stop apologizing or even defending them as merely rules or good ideas, but instead we recapture a vision that we are called to carry in the very way we conduct our lives, the very wisdom of God. And we're going to finish on this bit. This uh, passage on marriage deserves an entire sermon, but I'm just going to make a few observations. Let's just quickly read it. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word, to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed, they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Who loves taking relationship advice from a single guy? Uh, thanks, Paul. 
Again, I just want to make a few quick observations of this. This is deserving of an entire sermon. Notice the first line. This is setting, this is framing the entire rest of this passage. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You see, in the Bible, submission is this two-way street all the time. God doesn't even excuse himself from it. Christ submits himself to his people. He said, I haven't come to be served, I've come to serve. And we, in turn, submit ourselves to Christ's leadership. Elsewhere, church leaders are told to submit themselves to their people as humble servants. And the congregation are told to submit themselves out of respect for their church leaders. Now, we live in a time of great sensitivity when it comes to discussing relationships between men and women, and particularly this language of submission is completely foreign and almost seen as abusive in some circles. Our society emphasizes equality, but I tell you, mutual submission is a much stronger idea. With equality, there's still a battle for your rights. With mutual submission, we give up our rights and instead support and champion one another. You see, you can have equality without having love. Equality will not in and of itself make a Christian community. First thing I'd say. Now, there has been some debate among Christians, with some saying that in talking of headship, Paul is here saying that husbands are to be the leader and the final authority of the relationship. However, many would argue that Paul is speaking to a culture that is deeply patriarchal, where women were considered the property of men to do with as they pleased. And that because of this cultural reality, Paul's words accommodate the cultural norms of the day, while at the same time radically subverting it by scandalously calling for the husband to lay down his life for his wife. Some argue here that the Greek word for head means leadership or authority, and some have taken this to quite some lengths, that husbands are to make final decisions, that uh, all the family activities are to revolve around his priorities and career demands, and that he will generally set the tone for the relationship. And, unfortunately, it's true that these verses have sometimes been used as a club to keep women beaten down in a defeated role. But submission doesn't mean that we become doormats to be used by others. True submission is not something that is coerced from you by the other person. You can be fighting for justice in a relationship while still being motivated by a love of the other rather than a love of self. Others, interestingly, maintain that this word head actually means source, much like a river has its head in the mountains. In this view, the man pours himself out for his wife. It mirrors the Adam and Eve story where the man's rib was taken by God and formed into the woman. He was her source. Now, I would hold to an egalitarian position which maintains that husbands and wives are to submit to one another and that no one is meant to be in charge. I find the biblical evidence as well as the scholarly support for this position to be utterly convincing. I know too that this is the position that uh, Sam, our pastor, would hold if you were to ever to come to him for advice. But we are a church that ultimately finds unity not around this teaching but around the person of Jesus. So we can disagree on this so long as we treat one another well. Here's the thing. Regardless of how you interpret that passage, Paul is talking of submission to one another, not in terms of our traditional understandings of authority and power, but in terms of an obligation and duty to love and support one another. And Paul says at the end that this reveals to the world the profound mystery of Christ in the church. A uh, particularly poignant example of this for me is for the last couple of years, I've been struggling with um, mental health issues, and it's been a very hard time for our family. I found out only the other day that for the last several months, Joe, my wife, had been turning down 
all invitations to all social things, catching up with girlfriends, all that. Been turning everything down so that she could be there for me and not leave me alone with the kids. That's um, a beautiful example of submission. Uh, we're about to have our fifth baby, so I hope to be able to return uh, the favour. So how's your marriage or your significant relationship? Are those around you seeing this mutually submissive love and support? Husbands, how are you talking about your wives at work? Wives, how are you talking about your husbands? There's plenty more here that could be said. And just very lastly, I just want to tell you about this friend of mine. This is Edu. Uh, We got to know him and his now wife Fiona back in Christchurch. Growing up, Edu spent his life trying to please his dad, who never once told him he loved him. He was often beaten and abused by his father, who would be drunk much of the time. Edu developed a meth addiction in his adult years and spent a number of years behind bars for burglary. Certainly when Joe and I first met him, he would be drunk much of the time, and in fact, for the preceding two years, he would come home from work every day drunk. Fiona decided that she'd had enough, and she left him. Edu hit rock bottom. He phoned into work and said he wouldn't be in that day, and his boss, who happened to be a Christian, asked what had happened. Edu explained his trouble with alcohol. His boss came right over with the Bible and led Edu to the Lord. Edu said at that moment he repeated the words that his boss had asked him to pray. He felt almost a physical lightness come over him, as if a heavy weight was being lifted off his shoulders. Since that moment, Edu has been a changed man. Whereas in the past, Edu wouldn't trust Fiona. He was constantly suspicious that she would be off with someone else entirely without cause. He would be controlling and manipulative. Now he was filled with the love of God. His insecurities were in the move, had been removed. And so in the past, he wouldn't have even considered marriage because he would have felt it like being stuck with somebody he couldn't escape from. Now he could truly trust and love and submit to her. He's been entirely clean from alcohol and pee. In fact, he has sees himself as a beacon of hope to his wider whanau where alcoholism is running rampant doing untold damage. And so last weekend, we went up to Walkworth to see these guys get married. Even at the wedding, in his groomsman's speech, Eru gave his testimony and powerfully uh, preached the gospel. And I found out later, I just talked to Eru this week, there were some friends of his that they, uh, up at the wedding who, who had come up from Christchurch. These friends, they were a couple who had uh, been together for 10 years. It's not us. Uh, but for the last year, they hadn't slept in the same bed. Their relationship was on the rocks. There was no intimacy, no, no joy, no fun. Overwhelmed by the love and aroha they encountered at the wedding, along with the credibility of Edu's testimony and the obvious wise ways he was now living, uh, they decided they would give their relationship another shot. By the end of the weekend, they were hugging each other, giggling like teenagers, and they now want to move their entire life up from Christchurch up to Auckland so that they can uh, be around these guys and go to church with them. So Edu is just a living example of someone who has been radically transformed by God and who's learning that what it is to live wisely every day and that it's not just for himself but for his wider whanau. And just finally, as Sam said, you might want to come up and um, we'd welcome you to have some prayer at the end of this. In James, it's super specific. I love this. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, 
and it will be given to you. Okay? God's saying, come where you lack wisdom. Come and ask me. I won't point the finger. There's no guilt, there's no shame, and I'll give it to you. That's a pretty awesome promise. It's very rarely that uh, we see such a specific passage. So I'd encourage you, try God out on this. Put him to the test on this. Thanks.